You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, well, uh, if you've been with us uh, in this series, we uh, are in 1 Corinthians, and we've just kind of been humming along, man, at, at a pretty fast clip. If you've been with us, you know that, like, it's been about a, a chapter a Sunday, and that's a lot of terrain to cover. So this is really one of the first moments where we're, where we're even slowing the car down a little bit and pulling over to take a look at something. And that's kind of what's happening today. We are in a text that's sort of demanding of us that we're bumping into some topics that are, they're just harder. And so it is requiring that we pull over and we take a look and uh, investigate, explore, ask some good questions. And uh, you heard the text this morning, so you could probably guess where we're heading with this. There, there was a phrase in there that is requiring our attention. And uh, it it is where it says, men who practice homosexuality. So the topic of homosexuality is going to be in view this morning. We're going to take a deeper dive into that issue to kind of get our our mind and hearts around it. We want to think biblically about it. Uh, And we also thought, you know, what better thing to do after our highest attended Sunday in church history last week than to preach a topic that brings everyone together, right? (laughs) Just unites us so well. So uh, we thought that would be a great idea to do that. that is not true. Here, here's uh, what is true. This is what happens when you let the Bible pick the topics, right? When you go expositorily through texts of scripture, through books of the Bible, you just bump into things, y'all. You bump into stuff that, that a preacher is not normally going to go and grab and say, I can't wait to preach this one, right? Uh, that's what today is. Um, and it's a gift. Can we receive this as a gift to us? Because we need God's mind on all things. And so uh, exposure to difficult topics is a gift for us. We want to think critically about these important things. And can we agree? It's important. This is, I don't know uh, if you know this or not, a pretty live topic in our culture. Human sexuality is, is very, uh, a very hot topic right now. You just think of all of the things that's going on, social media, news headlines, college protests, Supreme Court rulings. The way you vote in a presidential election is determined by how you see these issues. So, so this is very live, very important, very loud, and so uh, it really matters because of what the culture is doing right now. But more than that, we're in a really unique season as the church, like the, the capital C, big Christian church. This is the first time really in church history where large swaths of the Christian church are beginning to rethink themselves on this issue. Like never before in all of church history, you're having Christians in mass do some more recalculations about how we see issues like homosexuality. Uh, Just over the past three years, uh, 1,800 churches have left the United Methodist Church um, over issues of of human sexuality and gender. Uh, You you see schisms happening in Anglicanism, in Presbyterianism. uh, What I'm saying is, in the church right now, this is very live as well in a way that it hasn't historically been. So you have culture, you've got sort of this church component, uh, but also if we're being honest, this is becoming increasingly personal for us as well, right? It's not just staying uh, out there. There What we're discovering is there are actual people on the other side of this conversation, actual human beings on the other side of this that require us to think incredibly increasingly critically about this. I remember at 15 years old, just freshly uh, saved, uh, my best friend in the world came out to me as gay uh, that day. And I, um, I, I, I had to rethink some things. Okay, wh- 
I thought I had this issue settled, but now I'm, I'm thinking about it with a human face in front of me. And, and how do I think about it? And am I thinking about it rightly? And, and if how I'm seeing is true, how does that affect our relationship and, and him and how I'm talking to him and about these issues? All that, it just becomes a different thing. And I know for lots of us in the room, we're experiencing that. You have, if you've grown up in sort of a church context, by and large, my guess is you've had this issue of sexuality, homosexuality settled for a long time. You, you probably had a sense of like, this is, these are the categories, this is where I stand on it, and then a friend comes out to you, or a neighbor, or a niece, or a nephew, or your son, or your daughter, and all of a sudden this isn't like a, just like a thing we mean tweet about anymore. This is, uh, this is humanized for us. And so it, the stakes are high here. There are real people and a real God saying real things about this issue. And so we really do owe it to ourselves and to others to, to pull the car over and take a look. And so that's what we're doing this morning. So it's a little bit different of a sermon, to a deeper dive, all of that. Um, but I want you to hang with me because I do think that it is very important. Here's, uh, I wanna do a few things today. We're gonna keep it relatively simple. I just wanna, um, I wanna survey the scriptures with you together and ask this very simple question. Does the Bible see homosexuality as a sin or not? Let's just see if we can settle that at all today. Does the Bible see homosexual practice as sin or not? And if so, why? And then I just want to end by uh, addressing a couple groups of people in the room, and then we're going to be done today. So that's kind of where we're heading. And let me just say this. I say this uh, a lot. My commitment to you, every time we preach a hard passage around here at Stonegate, which is like every other Sunday, uh, is this. I promise to offend you all equally today, okay? Indiscriminate, so if you think your team's winning, just hang on for five minutes, we're gonna get to you, okay? All right, that's, that's the rules. <sighs> Here we go. Question one, does the Bible see homosexuality, uh, homosexuality as a sin? Does it, does it see it as a sin? Gosh, there's so many things to be said about this. And by the way, I'm not gonna say everything, so prepare to be disappointed uh, this morning. Um, but there are some really key things to say and to see and observe. Here's one big thing that I just want us to make sure we have a sense of. The issue of homosexuality in the scope of scripture is very small. The, the coverage, the, the, the airtime it gets in the Bible is low. In the, in, the, in the scope of the entirety of the Christian scriptures, this issue is what the French call niche, right? It is, it is very, it's a small slice of the pie. The, the Bible is concerned with certain things that it deals with on virtually every page. The glory of God, the, the incarnation of Jesus, the redemptive work of God through his, history, reconciling a people themselves, all of these things. That, that is very live and all the time. And then there's even issues below that that, that show up a lot. This is not one of those things. So it, it's not a lot. Now, some people hear that and they go, see, this is not a... God doesn't make it a big deal. Why are we making it a big deal? Why are you giving a whole sermon to it? To that, I would simply just say, how many times does God have to rule on a thing before it's authoritative? Just one time. If God says anything about a thing, even once, we can be confident that's what it is. So, it, so the like frequency argument that he doesn't talk about it a lot, therefore it doesn't matter, that, that's, that is illegitimate. That's not a helpful way to think about this. 
Um, but it, it is the case that it's not frequent. Now, it's not one time. Uh, there's about six to seven explicit instances in your Bible that address homosexuality. You get a moment in uh, uh, Genesis. You get a couple moments in Leviticus. When you get over to the New Testament, you get Romans 1, 1 Timothy 1, 1 Corinthians 6. But beyond that, and a little bit more out there, that's kind of it. But here's what I want you to, to notice as we're getting into some of these texts today. We're going to do some work of like defining our terms, but before we even define the terms like homosexuality, uh, men who practice homosexuality, before we even define th- those terms, I want you to just notice this. Every instance of its appearance, this issue's appearance in the Bible, every time it shows up, the press coverage isn't great. So whatever it is, we haven't defined it yet, but whatever it is, it's worth just filing away in our mind. Every time it shows up, it shows up in a context you really don't want to be showing up in. So let me give you a couple examples. In the New Testament, you have these things called vice lists. They are lists of, wait for it, vices. Did you see? And uh, one of them is our text today, right? 1 Corinthians 6. It is a list of things that that Paul is saying... um, God uh, condemns, and then he, uh, he's going to commentate on that. That happens a number of times in the New Testament. And in two of those vice lists in the New Testament, we get this issue of homosexuality. Here in our text today, and then in 1 uh, Timothy 1. I'll read you uh, the passages so we can orient ourselves around this issue. And I just want you to hear the, um, the community of things that, that this issue rolls with, Okay. Uh, because it is important that we put it in its proper context. If 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, just all you have to do is listen. It says this. Now, we uh, know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. There's our word. Enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And then our text today. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? For neither, uh, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I, I did all that reading for you, uh, not to define our terms yet, but to simply give you a context for where we find these words, where we find this idea showing up. Whatever the term means, men who practice homosexuality, whatever it means, at least one thing we know it means is it's not good, right? We got to define it, but at least one thing we we know it means is is it's not good. It it is in a list of things that are outlawed by God, 1 Timothy 1. It's in a list of things that bring God's judgment, 1 Corinthians 6. Folks who practice whatever this is, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Whatever it is, this is a thing that will keep you out of God's kingdom along with the rest of the list. So this is what I meant when I said earlier, the stakes are really high here. There's there's real things going on. So let's see now if now we can do a little bit of work together to to grasp what Paul has in mind when he uses this term. What is he thinking of? What is he communicating? Let's go back to our text today and let's look at that phrase, men who practice homosexuality. And we're asking, is there anything here to help us see what he has in mind? Uh, Now, just warning, 
we are venturing again into nerd town, people, okay? We're gonna get some Greek going. I just need you to put on your thinking caps. We're, we're doing that whole thing, but, I, but really, again, we're gonna come out on the other side, I think helped by this, if you can hang with me, but we are gonna get uh, incredibly um, nerdy for a little bit. Uh, okay, there's the phrase, men practice homosexuality. That is a phrase that in this verse uh, is, is made from two Greek words. Two Greek words show up that we translate in English as men who practice homosexuality, okay? Uh, the first word is the word malakoi. Uh, that's a whole sermon in itself. We're putting that aside. We're not dealing with that one. We're just going to deal with the word arsenokoitai. So it's malakoi, arsenokoitai. Arsenokoitai is our word for the day. It is the word that appears here in 1 Corinthians 6, and it appears in 1 Timothy 1. Same word. And that word is most often translated in your Bibles in English as homosexuality, Okay? Now, why am I belaboring this? Well, it's a weird word in the Greek. It's a weird word. Uh, why is it weird? It's weird because, best we could tell, Paul made it up. Just made up a word. It's, uh, it's found nowhere else than in Paul's writings. And it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting word. It's a compound word, right? It's two words together make a new thing. It's cupcake, hot dog, arsenokoitai. Okay? Um, it brings two words together that's saying a new thing. Uh, here are the two words that make up arsenokoitai. It's the word arson, which is the Greek word for man, and the word koitos, which is the word for bed. Put those together, and you've got Paul's word, arsenokoitai. If you were to translate it literally, it would read something like men bedders, men who bed men. Now, it doesn't take much imagination to figure out what he has in mind when he's using this word. Baked into this very word is the, uh, for lack of a better word, the visual that, po that Paul is wanting to convey to us. It is the thing that he has in mind is the thing that men do in bed with other men. Now, that would, that's compelling in, it, in itself as we're trying to seek our definition. Because, again, what's our driving question? Is homosexual practice a sin, according to the Bible. So that's compelling by itself, but there's actually something richer going on here, something deeper, that if you were a first century reader reading Paul's letter, you would actually um, be really taken back by. Uh, this is where we're going f just full nerd on it. Uh, here we go. Um, okay. The New Testament was written in Greek, originally. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, primarily, originally. But that Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, Christians do, uh, that was translated into Greek for the first century readers, uh, folks like Jesus' disciples, uh, folks like the, the folks that Paul ran with, that, that whole crew of folks. It was translated into Greek from Hebrew, and it's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, okay? And it is what everybody in Paul's day and Jesus' day would have been acquainted with and familiar with in a Greek-speaking culture. It is very likely what all of those people would have been engaging with when they were engaging with the Christian scriptures. I mean, when they were engaging with the Old Testament scriptures. Is that, are we clear on that? The Septuagint, Greek translation, yes? Okay, now watch this. In the Septuagint, in the first five books of the Old Testament, right? The, the Law of Moses, the Torah, in the book of Leviticus, there are two mentions of this issue of homosexuality, right? Uh, one appears in Leviticus 18, one appears in Leviticus 20, verse 13. Now, I'm going to read you one of those texts, and then I'm going to make a point about it, and you're going to see the connection here. 
So this is Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, in the Old Testament law code, in, in the books of Moses, right there at the beginning of the Bible, and it says this, if there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act, they shall surely be put to death, their blood guiltiness is upon them. So, uh, that's the English translation. Here's where it gets very interesting. In the Septuagint, in the Greek translation, if you were to read this in the Greek, like Paul's readers would have, that phrase right there, a man who lies with a male, is made up of two words. Can you guess what they are? Arson and koitos. It's the only time they appear together in our Bible outside of Paul. Now they're separated there, but they're, but they're right there. Arson and koitos. And then Paul, all the way in the New Testament, comes up with this new word, arsenokoitai. So what is he up to? Here's what Paul's doing. Paul is borrowing language from as far back as the first five books of Moses, the, law, the, the Mosaic law code. He's borrowing that, bringing that over to his first century readers. And he's saying, from, from the earliest days of the people of God until now, there has been continuity in, the, in God's understanding, vision of, and pronouncement on this issue we call homosexuality. That it is condemned by him. Men with men in bed, it's condemned by God. And it's not just an invention of me or the first century church. This is going all the way back to the earliest days of the people of God when God was pronouncing judgment then. It's consistent over time, Paul's saying. So it's not just something now. It's for all time. This is how God understands this issue of homosexuality. You see that? It's incredibly compelling, especially if you were a first century reader. Okay, um, that's a lot. Thank you for not leaving. Um, let, me, uh, let me deal with an objection because up until this point, everything I said, um, there's nothing that I said that anyone would disagree with, be them conservative or liberal progressive. Everybody's in agreement with everything I said, what the words mean, where they show up, all that. There is an issue, though, that has become popular recently about what those words mean that I want to bring your attention to. Because here's the deal. This sermon isn't going to do you any good if you want to think critically about it. If you get out of here after me just saying that, and you get online, you go, you know, uh, is that really what Jimmy means? And uh, what you're going to hear popping up online is this objection that I'm about to tell you. And the objection goes like this. Yes and amen to all that. That is true, that's what those words mean. Yes, Leviticus, yes, Paul, all of that, yes. It's just not what Paul was meaning. Paul did not have in mind, Jimmy, what you think he has in mind. What Paul had in mind when he was bringing that uh, critique on homosexuality was something more akin to pagan temple cult prostitution that was happening in the days of the Romans, that was happening way back in Leviticus with the Canaanites. It was temple prostitution where men would take advantage of temple slaves, usually young boys, and they would sleep with them in order to appease their false gods. And that pagan, idolatrous, wicked act, which is uh, pederasty and rape and all of these terrible things. That is what Paul is saying. Don't do that, Christians. Don't be like the world. That's what he has in mind, that expression of homosexuality. But what he's not talking about is consensual, affection-filled, monogamous relationships between adults. 
That's not what Paul's talking about. So yes to everything you said, but I'm just saying that's not what Paul has in mind. What, what I want to be and do with my partner in the, maybe a, even the covenant of marriage as a same-sex couple is not what Paul is thinking about. He's thinking about something closer to rape and pederasty and cultic temple practices. So this text really doesn't have any bearing on my life. So that's, that's the objection. And we have to, what do you say to that? How, how are we to think about this? I want to equip us. Let me give you a couple comments here. Comment one would be this. Um, this view became popular about 40 years ago. 40 years ago. For, for 1,960 years, the Christian church has had virtual unanimity on this issue. How to understand it, what homosexuality is, how to apply these texts. And then about 40 years ago, that changed and a new understanding came on the table. So what I'm saying is, in, in the scope of Christian theology, this is very new. It's novel. That doesn't make it wrong. New things aren't necessarily wrong things, but it does mean as good thinkers, our antennas should go up and we should be asking good critical questions of anything that's as new as that when there's been almost 2,000 years of unilateral agreement on the issue until then, okay? So I'm not saying it's wrong uh, based on that. I'm just saying our antennas should go up, fair? But here's the, the, the more important thing to say about it. The text of scripture just won't let you hold that view the text itself just won't let that interpretation stand. Now to show you what I mean, I could show you from these texts we've already engaged with, I wanna take you to uh, another place uh, that puts a little bit of finer point on it. You can go there if you wanna see, I kinda want you to go there to see it with your own eyes. It's Romans chapter one, verses 26 and 27. This is another moment where homosexuality is being dealt with. Uh, it's by Paul again. He, uh, he says uh, this in verse 26. For, the re, uh, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations. For those that are contrary to nature, this is the one and only mention of lesbianism in the scriptures, by the way. Verse 27, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So remember, what are we trying to answer? We're trying to answer the objection that says, what Paul has in mind are not affection-based, consensual relationships between adults. That what he's dealing with is actually um, men with boys and rape and cultic temple practices. That's, that's the issue in Paul's mind. But does that work with the text? This is where we have to think critically, guys. I want you to see with your own eyes. Look at verse 27, because here's what I see. It says men were consumed with passion. There's affections. For one another, there's consent. Men committing shameless acts with men. There's adults. You see that this is, there is no way that this text is talking about rape, or pederasty, this is mutuality. This is consensual, affection-based sex between adult men. It's just what the text says. I don't know another way to put it. So, it's a lot. But let's step back, let's take it as a whole. What, what can we say about our first question? When we step back and we assess things, what can we say? When you put all this together, here's what you get. 
the issue of homosexual practice is explicitly condemned in both the Old Testament, we saw that, and the New Testament. That every occurrence of this issue in the Bible is always only framed negatively. There's not one positive affirmation of homosexuality in the entire Bible. And furthermore, the Christian church for almost 2,000 years has had virtual unanimity on this issue, including 1,000 years prior to the advent of Christ, till about 40 years years ago. So when I step back and I look at all the data taken as a whole, it seems very clear to me that the the statement of the Bible is, yes, homosexual practice is sin. It's just, there's no way grammatically, historically, lexically that you can say otherwise from the text. But now I want to ask, why? Right? Because maybe, maybe, um, what I've said so far feels compelling. You're like, yeah, it makes sense. But there's some, maybe another question come up in you, which is, but why, why this? Like, why? It f- feels so, maybe, maybe that's all true, Jimmy, but what's God's big problem with it? It's one thing to say, God said don't do it, but now I'm asking, why does he even care? Right? Love is love. Why should, why, why should this matter so much? Why pick on this? Is there rationale to this? Does God just pick random things he's not into? Like, it's like, uh, I'm more of a Coke guy, so all you Pepsi guys can go to hell. Is that, is that like the, the thing that's happening? And God, we just picks a random thing that he's into? Is that, is that how God makes decisions here? Or is there something compelling that we could observe from this text of scripture that gives us a good why, that gives us a sense of something maybe beautiful that he's up to, something lovely, maybe something that's even conveying something meaningful to the world around us by embracing this vision for our sexuality. Is there anything we could say about that? And the answer to that is yes, there is. But to answer that question, we've got to go all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible all the way to Genesis chapter one. Now, some of you who were uh, here for our Genesis series, um, this will be familiar territory to you. So this will be a little bit of review, but uh, hopefully this will be helpful. I wanna take us back to the moment of creation in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, because I think this is the most compelling thing to say about the issue of homosexuality. The most compelling. So if you're gonna remember anything, I would, I would encourage you to remember this. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we have the creation of man. And one of the interesting things to observe uh, is uh, a a lot of the language that's used here. Uh, There's a lot of image language used. God made man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Over and over, this word image and likeness is being used. And what's happening in the text of scripture is we're getting this impression that what God is doing in the making of human beings is is something akin to, well, this is how we would talk about in our culture. If you were going to portray an image of yourself to the world, what would you call that thing? Well, we would call that what? A self-portrait, right? So what is God doing in the creation of mankind? He is actually painting, functionally, a type of self-portrait of himself to the watching world. So that's a helpful way to think about what the creation of mankind is. It's a self-portrait of God. But here's, here's the kink in that. Uh, God's, a, I don't know if you know, he's kind of complex. H- how do you paint a self-portrait if you're God, I don't know if you noticed from the text, but it gets a little freaky, like with the language, right? Uh, So this is apparently who God is. Uh, Then God, singular, said, let us, plural, make man in our plural image after our plural likeness. So God, singular, created man in his singular own image. In the image of God, singular, he, singular, created him. What? I don't, yeah. So, So this is like one of our first glimpses 
into the complex beauty of our God, where we are seeing, it's just, it's just a, a, sh- a shadow of it right now, but what we are seeing in even this verse is that somehow in the mysterious being that is God, there is both, according to this text, plurality and unity. There's both plurality and there's both distinction and connection. Let us make man so God himself created man. Plurality and unity. Okay, so here's where it gets interesting. If you happen to be both singular and plural, anybody out there like that? If you happen to be both singular and plural, how in the world, if you're about to paint a self-portrait, do you paint a self-portrait? How do you do it? The answer is, well, the only way you can do it is to paint two self-portraits and then to unite them. And wouldn't you know that's exactly what God does in the text? Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image, singular. In the image of God, he created him, singular. Explodes into the plural, male and female, he created them. Here's what this means. Your existence and your sexuality is not just saying something biological. It's saying something theological. How God made us as men and women and how he has decided to bring us together under the covenant of marriage in sexual union with one another is to say something not just about ourselves and this is what we look like and this is our shape and this is our form, but to say something about him. He is conveying something about him. And what he is saying is this, I am a plurality and a unity. I am distinction and connection. And so my self-portrait is going to reflect that. I'm going to bring pluralities together in unity. I'm going to bring distinctions together in connection. And this, I think, is the great critique of homosexuality. It's not just that the Bible says it's bad, don't do it. It's that it doesn't tell the truth about the nature of our God fundamentally. It doesn't tell, the, it only tells one side of the story, right? This gets us out from under all the arguments about, well, is it arsenic time? What does it mean? And that was a Paul word, Paul. And then it, it, it gets us out from all that and allows us to just understand what's at the bedrock of it. For me to replace someone who is other than me with someone who is a mere image of me is to only tell one half of the story of God. It's only to talk about his unity and not his plurality. And that is the critique. That if we're anything as the people of God in this room, we wanna be people who tell the truth about God and fundamentally at its very core, no matter how you cut it or slice it, no matter whether it's monogamous, consensual or not, no matter how you slice it, at the very core, homosexuality is essentially only saying half the story. And that's the problem God has with it. So what is the why down here? We want to be people who tell the truth about God. And just at its core, homosexual practice does not. Now, I want to talk to a couple groups of people, and then we're going to be done. I want to talk to Christians in the room for a moment. Some of you are so excited 
that I preached this sermon. That I finally let the other guys have it. You probably need to repent. Not because you hate this sin so much, but because in all likelihood, you hate your sin so little. If this issue gets your blood boiling, but your own sinfulness is an afterthought to you, you have missed the heart of Jesus. You've missed it. I was talking to a guy just recently, professing Christian, talk, topic of homosexuality gets brought up, and he could hardly contain himself. He was so mad. And yet in that same conversation, I started asking him about his own sinful habits, and he couldn't think of one. That's wrong. Where is our grief over our offenses at God? Where is our shame over our rampant pornography addiction? Over our sexual promiscuity, over our adulteries and our fantasies and our sex outside of the context of it. Where is the, the vitriol, the anger for that? Where is it? Or did you forget the, the, the very first thing in the vice list from Paul in this text is this don't be deceived, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Guess what, guys? That's all of us. That is every one of you. Get livid about you first. Start a petition about you. Weep for you first. And then we can talk about this. To those in the LGBTQ community, for those of you who have been hurt by unloving Christian responses to you, I've said it once, I will say it again, I am sorry. We are pretty bad at this. But I want to tell you that there really is a God who loves you and he's calling you to himself. And yes, that call to himself is an invitation to die to your vision for your life. It is. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It is calling you to a vi different vision than what you have for your life, just like it's calling me. And yes, you turning from your vision of your life and your vision of your sexual life will feel like death to you. Yes, it will. But can I promise you something? On the other side of that death, there is life with this man who himself is the satisfier 
of the deepest longings of your soul and he will walk with you and he will change you and there is joy in him and there are brothers and sisters right here who want to walk with you and run with you and fight hard against sin with you just like we need in our life. It's the same and I'm inviting you today to turn from your sin and turn to Christ who washes every sin away. He does it. One of my favorite verses in in all of this book is right here in verse 11, where Paul writes, after all that, all, all the vices, all the things that are keeping us out of the kingdom of God, he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. If you're here today and you're hearing this and by some act of mercy of God on you, you're not mad at me or him, but you actually feel brokenness over your sin, you're going, what's that? I didn't expect to feel, don't squash that down. That is God doing something in you. And I want you to hear this very clearly. God is here to wash you by the blood of his son today. You don't have to feel dirty anymore. He is here to give you a new life with him, to give you a brand new vision for where to head with him so you don't have to be aimless anymore. He is here to declare over you righteous, holy, pure in my eyes so you don't have to feel condemned anymore. That is what God is offering you if you trust in the work of his son for you. And can I tell you, that's the exact same thing he's offering everybody else in this room. Gay, straight, it doesn't matter. We all need cleansing. We all need washing. We all need sanctification. We all need justification. And he offers it to us if we'll cling to the cross. Turn from our vision for our life, our sexual life, heterosexual, homosexual, it doesn't matter. It's not my vision anymore. You get to do what you want with me. You're the only one who paid my fine. You're worthy of my time, my affection, my life. I lay it down and he will change you. He will make you his. It won't be easy. He'll do it for all of us, no matter where we are. That's what he does. And that is the call of this text. Let's pray. Father, would you make some new creatures in this room today? Would you make some new creations in Christ? I just, I I refuse to think that the good gospel news going forth of a savior who would rescue every sexually broken person in the world, if only they would trust in him. I, I refuse to believe that you're not gonna do something with that today. Please, God, would you open someone's eyes, open their hearts, bring them to you. Maybe for the first time, they they get some clarity, they they feel something they didn't feel before, some conviction, a fresh sense of the weight of their sin before a holy God, and then Christ, and then the cross. I just want, I I want us to come to you, God. God, would would you save? Would you correct? Would you guide us? Would you lead us? Would you wash us? sanctify us, justify us, change us so that when we sing these words here in a minute, 
mean him. I, I want to build my life upon your love. I went, I, I'm, I'm done chasing my vision for me. I want to build it on your vision for me. God, would you do that? Give us the courage to chase after you and to count the cost. And thank you for loving us so much. In Jesus' name, amen.